0: Someone once asked me how long it's going to take to get through the book of Acts, and I assure you it'll be before I'm 70 years old. So, (laughs) Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And all God's people said, Amen. We love you, Father. We're thankful for your word. It is our desire to continue to worship you and our responses to it. And I pray that your spirit would strengthen us and enable us uh, to live it out, to grow day by day, week by week, year by year, pressing toward that mark of the high calling that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach it and that you would mix uh, the word with faith in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. a number of years ago the Navy was testing out a new cannon that they had mounted on the wings of one of their uh, fighter jets and the uh, plane was flying at supersonic speeds uh, but the cannon shells were subsonic and a disaster happened the fighter uh, plane actually flew into its own bullets and shot itself down as what I understood the jet was simply flying too fast and in part That is what has precipitated some of the problems in the uh, church in this chapter. The church had been growing so fast that the apostles were not able to keep up with what was happening. In fact, they didn't even notice what was happening. So let's begin at verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Things were going fast, and when things go fast, you tend to not analyze things, and when you don't analyze things, you tend to do what comes naturally, and what comes naturally is not always the, uh, the best uh, thing, and uh, in this chapter, what happens is the church has to slow down, reevaluate, and make the corrections that need to take place, almost every Christian organization has had times where they've had to do that kind of reevaluation. Sometimes it's happened because of the complaints of the people. Sometimes the leaders have caught it before there's any troubles out there. Sometimes it's just because they've scheduled uh, these times of reevaluation and they realize, you know, in order to be more effective, we need to make uh, some of these kinds of uh, adjustments. And our own church right now is uh, rethinking the whole question. How can we more effectively engage in the ministries of the church, and so pray for us, pray for wisdom i 'm very excited we have elders who are willing and uh, are able to uh, preemptively take steps needed for the health of the church and so that 's all we 're going to deal with today is verses one and two, and uh, we 're going to look at what happens when you 're going too fast. Well one thing that happens is uh, Problems can arise, and not necessarily problems that will shoot down the church, shoot down the plane, uh, but uh, there could be problems. Some of them may be administrative problems, others may be uh, problems that are sin issues. In this case, it was both administrative and sin issues that had to be dealt with. And one of the things I find fascinating about the Bible is uh, that it is so frank about the sins of its heroes, even when the heroes are writing. The scriptures, and I think that shows some of the inspiration of those scriptures. If you were to write a biography about yourself, you'd probably kind of cover over some of the embarrassing details, and you don't find them doing that. Whether you're talking about a a Jacob or a David, the weaknesses are highlighted right along with the strengths, and that's exactly what we see happening in this chapter. The, uh, The Bible is just so refreshingly frank about sin. Uh, My parents' generation, they they would say, yeah, he's calling a spade a spade. Um, And uh, too often what we see happening in books is that people refer back to the New Testament period as being the church in its purity, the church in its innocence, and they're longing to go back to those times. Let me assure you that the grass was not greener on the other side of the historical fence, Okay, they had problems all over the place. They had some problems occasionally with teachers and problems occasionally with ruling elders and problems with the people. They had problems on the local level. They had problems on the presbytery level. I mean, uh, all you have to do is look at the church in Jerusalem and in Thyatira and Pergamus and Laodicea and some of the other churches there, and you begin to realize this was not an ideal uh, church. They had Uh, struggles that they were uh, going through Uh, they had every sin that we have today and it is simply naive to speak of the new testament church as being the church in its purity no way but to me this is encouraging because of the bible's realism about sin we can look at the sins that they had back then see how they dealt with them and learn from it in terms of the problems that we face as well Now, in this case, it was the sins of prejudice and murmuring, which were threatening the progress of the uh, church, and I want to analyze those sinful attitudes, but first of all, I want you to notice that these sins were cropping up in the midst of a vibrant, spirit-filled church. Sounds sort of like a contradiction, but it is not. We ought not to think of the church of Jesus Christ when it's ideal even as being a perfect church. Uh, The Bible nowhere presents it as being sinless. Vibrant Christianity is sinners who have been forgiven of their sins and who by God's grace are putting off the old life and are putting on the new life. A vibrant church is not a church that thinks it's got it made. In fact, that's the very definition of the lukewarm church, Laodicea, right? Uh, They thought they had it all put together. Let me quote from Revelation. John rebuked them in these words. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And he's speaking in context in terms of spiritual riches. They said they had need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Every one of us is utterly destitute apart from God's grace. And if we think we can get by apart from God's grace, uh, we're really in trouble. And so we should not be too harsh on churches that have not come along as far as we think that you know they should have come along we have, if we see that they are struggling we ought to be grateful they're struggling you know that they're fighting where we ought to be concerned is where a church doesn't struggle at all does not care about sin but none of us is going to be uh completely at the goal until heaven but i i want to just look at why do i say that this was a vibrant church three reasons it was a vigorously growing church, and it was growing for all of the right reasons. Secondly, it was a church that sought to practice the Word. Thirdly, it was a church that was willing to make corrections as soon as those corrections were brought to their attention. Let's, let's look at those three reasons. First of all, it was a vigorously growing church. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, not just addition, Uh, The Lord was adding to the church so much, it was growing exponentially, which is why they use the word uh, multiplying. And as you go through the book of Acts, you just see the language keeps increasing. Uh, In verse 1, it says multiplying. In verse 7, after the deacons are elected and begin to work, it says multiplied greatly, which produces multitudes. Chapter 8, verse 6, then myriads, many myriads. And it's no wonder that the unbelievers (coughs) are saying about these Christians, that they have turned the world upside down. Chapter 17, uh, verse 6, Despite the persecution, the church was experiencing victory rather than defeat. In fact, they are growing at the very time when you would have expected people to be bailing out left and right. I mean, think about it. Put what was happening there into the context of an American church And just imagine what would happen if every single day you've got newspapers, you've got radio, you've got TV that's giving announcements that are bad announcements about these churches. I mean, think of how modern Christianity is so image conscious. And then think about the Pharisees who were in political leadership. They had the control of everything. Think of what they're saying. And you're listening to headlines like this. Pastors of First Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem arrested for a second time, found guilty of four criminal charges, or lawless pastors refused to submit to lawful jurisdiction of the state, or insubordinate pastors refused to stop engaging in slanderous and subversive propaganda, or Church of Jerusalem found guilty of treason. I can almost guarantee you that a mega mega church out there, you know, had these kinds of things brought against their pastors, you'd have some nervous people bailing out left and right. Who knows? Maybe our church would uh, begin to decrease in in numbers as well. And that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes that that can be a purifying, a uh, healthy thing. You guys have all heard the uh, the story of the uh, the English pastor and the Scottish pastor. They were getting together in a conference in England. And they were after one of the conference times uh, sharing together about what was happening and the English pastor was so excited he said you know we've had incredible revival in our church we had 500 additions to our church and uh, pastor McTavish from Scotland said oh that is wonderful brother that is wonderful we've had revival in our church too and pastor Brown from England said oh really how many additions have you had And he said additions brother nay we've had blessed subtractions (laughs) he said Scottish revival right Um, And it really can be a revival it can be one of the best things that can happen to a church This is what happened in Ethiopia. This is what happened in China. It happened in a lot of places The chaff is purged out of the way, but we're not even starting with a lot of chaff in the church Here is a situation where you've got all of the right reasons for people to be bailing out of the church and yet instead of that you see the church growing uh, they're growing for all of the right reasons. The word of God is triumphing in their lives. I love the way Acts nineteen twenty words it. After describing growth in that chapter, they're just multitudes coming to Christ, uh, Luke summarizes by saying, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Okay, my point here is that it was a vibrant church into which these sins came up. Never think that problems will not be present in a growing, vibrant church. Now, another indication this was a vibrant church is that the text describes the members as being doers of the word. It's very easy to focus on the discrimination and miss the fact that there were incredible mercy ministries that were going on here. Let me read this for you again. Verse 1. Uh, it goes on to say, There arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the, note this phrase, in the daily distribution. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And so even though there were problems, there was some wonderful diaconal ministry that was going on when there were no deacons. I find that very significant, very significant. There were no deacons. most churches today couldn't even commit the sin of discrimination, you know, in their mercy ministry because there are no mercy ministries uh, that are going on. And all you have to do is remind yourself of the, uh, the ministries that were happening in Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4, and you'll see they practiced what they preached. Their love drove them to minister in one another's lives. They were busy. In fact, they were so busy in doing these good things that they were missing the problems that were happening. Let me give you... A hint that it wasn't just the rich people who were ministering either, um, and I believe that the widows who needed the food and needed the help they also uh, were being uh, uh, were, were ministering. And I say this because there was an apostolic rule that if you work not, neither shall you eat, at least if you're capable of working. No matter how poor a person might be, he was able to minister to the Lord. And Paul in several passages said you really ought not to be extending long-term a ministry to the poor unless you're also involving them in responsibility. It's a part of the process of mercy ministries. And I've put in your outline just one example, 1 Timothy 5, a requirement to the widows who are being cared for. It says this, She must be well reported of for good works if she has brought up children if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saint's feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. This is not just a welfare handout where people can sit back and eating bonbons, as uh, Deb likes to word it. Yeah, sitting back with bonbons. No, it was expected of the body as a whole, and the body as a whole was very, very involved in mercy ministry. So it was a vibrant church, as we'll see shortly. It was a humble church. It was willing to correct problems as soon as they surfaced. Now, my conclusion is don't give up on churches out there just because they're a sin, right? What we do is we seek to bring reformation. We're constantly seeking to advance the cause of God's kingdom in our lives individually, in the church and in society. Now, let me briefly describe the two sins of this church. First, there was the sin of prejudice. Now, it took several chapters in the book of Acts before God was able to break the church completely of this uh, ingrained racial prejudice. By the way, uh, one of the things people have told me in the past is that they say the Old Testament was prejudiced, the New Testament was not. That is absolutely false, and I've got a paper that talks about the Old Testament Uh, that uh, shows that the division that uh, God had established was a religious division, not an ethnic division. Anytime Gentiles wanted to become Jews, they could. In the book of Esther, it says many Gentiles became Jews. But what happened in the hundred years before the time of Christ is the Pharisees were giving all of their reinterpretations of the scriptures and they took what once was a religious separation and made it an ethnic separation. But just to give you a, a feel for the strength of the prejudice, realize that these Hellenists that were being discriminated against are technically Jews. Now, they may have, first generation, been converted into uh, the Jewish faith, or they may have been multiple generations. But ethnically, they did not come from the same stock that the Hebrews came from. But in every other way, technically, they were Jewish. They were circumcised, they ate kosher food, they followed all of the regulations. Uh, in every way they looked Jewish except for their ethnic background. Now if prejudice manifested itself amongst those Jews, just because of the you know, slight differences that were there, you can imagine how difficult it was for them to overcome the prejudice when there was full-blown Gentiles who are included in the church, and they're not circumcised, and they're not eating kosher food, and they're not following all of the regulations that they were used to following. Uh, Peter appears to be just about as grossed out by God's command to go into a Gentile house and to eat there as he was grossed out when God gave him this vision of creepy, crawling, slithery things, that he said, go, kill, and eat. He said, I can't do that, Lord. You know, it's unclean. It was something terribly distasteful for him. As late as chapter 11, verse 19, Luke says this, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, now get this phrase, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Here they are living in Gentile lands, and they won't preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They're only preaching to the Jews. It was like an elite club that they were involved in. There was racial prejudice. When I was in uh, Georgia, I knew some people who were so strongly prejudiced against blacks that they would break off a friendship with you if uh, you befriended a black. Now, on the other hand, I know uh, black pastors in our own city here Uh, Who have lost friends because they have gone to dinner with me and have been willing to fellowship with me And they call him a whitey, you know a traitor acting like he is out And so racial prejudice is not just in one group. It can be anywhere In fact, this goes back as far back as we have recorded uh, history Uh, In this chapter the Hellenists were second-class citizens and the interesting thing about it is that no one noticed Not even the Apostles had noticed that this was the case and I think part of the reason is we tend to be blind to our own culture's sins. Isn't that true? I mean, we're so immersed in the culture, we tend not to see. Our, we, we can see other cultures' sins. We say, oh, man, I can't believe that they're doing that. And the Christians who are over there, you know, they tend to be blind to their culture's sins. Um, and it's especially true if you're focused on ministry and you're busy you're going so fast you don't notice how your actions impact others i've had a number of blacks and asians tell me how subtle uh the discrimination that they feel uh, from uh, whites on occasion um, and just unwittingly showing prejudice based on skin color and i think uh, some of the times we're just oblivious oblivious to the fact that we are doing this to others And so if we catch ourselves involved in uh, this kind of behavior, we need to repent. We say, Lord, we want to treat each other as one in Christ. Uh, For example, if we make statements uh, such as, oh, yeah, blacks do such and such, uh, stereotyping. You're not dealing with individuals. You're dealing with a stereotype based on skin color. If you say, yeah, the problem with North Omaha is... And then you go on to describe it, not making distinctions between people. It's a form of prejudice that we need to recognize and that we need to repent of. And uh, uh, we can do the same with Hispanics, with Asians, and um, they can do the same with whites. Uh, No stereotyping. So this was the first sin. The second sin that crept up in the church was a little bit different. In fact... It was engaged in by the very people who were experiencing the racial prejudice. Uh, You can be very sensitive to racism, you can be opposed to racism, and yet you can engage in this sin without even realizing that you were engaging in it. When verse one says that there was a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, the Greek word is gonguzmas. It is never used of a legitimate complaint. The Greek word here, by definition, is sin. He's describing. In fact, it's a sin that over and over again, uh, God uh, judged uh, in the Bible. Um, It refers to a kind of behind-the-back or secret. Grumbling, murmuring, complaining that undermines and that um, is spread in private rather than being spread in, in a public way. Uh, this word is used um, in the uh, secular literature to describe the rebellious murmuring of a work gang that's about ready to just rebel and go against what the master wants to do. It's an undercurrent of bitterness and revenge, gossip, and plotting. In fact, <clears throat> it is a kind of sin that's almost impossible for leaders. To nail down to discipline because it's done behind the back and almost always because there is a legitimate gripe that those people have How do you deal with it because you know, they do have a legitimate gripe? very hard uh, To to nail down this word complaint is not a positive word. It's the type of talk that harbors wounds and rancor inside and spreads the wounds and the rancor uh, without a positive or constructive dealing with the problem, uh, one time it was used in the secular uh, literature of a, an emperor who was worried about the discontent that was going on in the in the empire, worrying about a revolt that would happen. And Scripture condemns <coughs> condemns such murmuring because it's not only destructive to the people engaging in it; it is destructive to the people who are listening because it's bringing people into that poisonous effect. And so, there was not just the sin of prejudice, there was also the sin of murmuring. One sin led to another. Now, what do we do when we're faced with sin in the church? Scripture only gives us two options. First option is love covers a multitude of sins. So, I get the impression it ought to be more that way than the other, but love covers a multitude of sins, which means that we need to be able to ignore it and recognize this person's growing. He's working on other sins, and God's going to be taking him along, and I'm just not going to get bent out of shape about it. The other approach is that love, the same love that can cover over a multitude of sins, that same love that's concerned for this person confronts the sin and seeks to restore this brother to the sin. And many times it's a hard balance. How do I know when I confront how do I know when I cover over the sin? And um, uh, it, it is a, a tough balance. But those are the two options that Scripture lays. <clears throat> well, these people here were doing neither. Rather than going to the people involved and then going to the elders, whether, if there was not repentance, going to the elders in a public uh, way if necessary, they were murmuring, complaining in private among themselves, just getting each other bitter. Has that ever happened to you? Or somebody comes to you and he's complaining about a brother. And uh, it's a legitimate complaint, but they ought not to be bringing that complaint to you. And they're talking about it. And just, oh, you know, and you're commiserating with them. And you realize, you know, I really shouldn't be doing this. I should be sending this person back to that person to confront them, to deal with the issue. And I think we as Christians need to be on guard against both of those sins because they can be destructive to the church. Uh, Jesus in Matthew tells us that whether you are the one who has sinned or whether you're the one who has been sinned against You need to have the courage to go to the person and deal with it in Matthew chapter 5 It says you've sinned against somebody and the Lord brings that to your attention He says immediately go you leave your gift at the altar you go and you get reconciled you talk him and you alone Matthew 18 gives the opposite side where somebody sinned against you and it doesn't say You know you need to take this to two or three brothers and uh say you know brother i've got a i've got a real prayer request that we need to talk about this guy has you know half an hour later after talking about this guy uh you haven't prayed yet but you sure spread your prayer request plenty uh it doesn't say that doesn't say gripe about your brother behind his back jesus said this if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But you know what? You don't gain your brother when you complain about him behind his back. In fact, it just poisons you further and it spreads the poison with others. Now, I hope you've been noticing the tactics that Satan has been using through the book of Acts. He is an incredibly clever enemy. He's got 6,000 years of history to practice with people, he knows the weaknesses of people, he knows how to take advantage of them. And so he's been using different tactics, trying to hit up the church every angle that he can. Um, uh, First of all, initially, he tried to undermine the church through personal insecurity in chapter 3. These were unlettered um, nobodies who could have very easily been intimidated by the intellectuals that were confronting them. And the intellectuals made it clear that they were unlettered nobodies. But they handled that in a godly way. They resisted. Satan was not able to impact them, and so uh, he had to flee. Well, when that strategy didn't work, Satan tries to undermine the work of the church through physical intimidation, chapter 4. Then through the internal sins of lying, pride, stealing, chapter 5. Then when that didn't work, he brings physical persecution, chapter 5. Then through legislation. You see, Satan never gives up, and now he's saying, okay, they're they're not bending from outside. Let's work on the inside again. Let's bring some sins from the inside and again you may not think of the sins of racism and uh, murmuring as being big issues but i want you to realize these were big issues in god's mind in fact there are so many judgments that are recorded moses's sister miriam was struck with leprosy because she was murmuring about the fact that moses had married an ethiopian you know Uh, Paul, using exactly the same word, warned us, let us not murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10. So in dealing with the sin of prejudice, let's not forget about the sin of murmuring. If you guys have things that are troubling you and are bothering you, what you need to do is you have two options. You can say, well, I'm just going to ignore it. Love covers over sin. If you can't ignore it, you need to go to that person. You need to talk with them and see if you can't get it resolved follow the matthew 18 uh, process now here in a sense i think the elders were responsible for what was happening because they were overseeing the work of these mercy ministries at this point and uh, it was not getting done efficiently another way of saying it is they were flying so fast (laughs) that they did not notice that uh, they were going they were in danger of being shot down with their own bullets. Now, thankfully, when the murmuring, when the sin of prejudice came to their attention, wow, immediately, they said, yes, we need to give a remedy to this problem. And we as elders want to be open and receptive to problems that we might be blind to. I guarantee you, we're going to overlook things. And that's where you, the people, come in and have a responsibility. Rather than ignoring something that may be destructive behavior, lovingly bring it up. Uh, rather than complaining to each other, lovingly confronted. And I think we'll be a much stronger church if we do so. Now, let's look at the solution very briefly. Verse 2 says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. Now, it's very easy to focus on the apostles and these new officers that are uh, going to be elected. But I want you to notice, even here, the elders did not act unilaterally. The solution came from the body, from the congregation. And it's very easy for us to assume we've got a need here, and so we'll let the elders take care of it. Uh, Just like, you know, in America, we've got a need, okay, I guess it's the federal government's job to take care of it, right? There's this tendency for us to think, let George uh, do it. And uh, I want you to realize that the elders really do believe, and in every mini- member of ministry, and we believe that many of the solutions come from you. Earlier we saw that was the case. Here in terms of choosing leaders, uh, that was the case as well. And even in terms of what was going to happen, that's going to be the case, because I think we need to realize these deacons were not going to do all of the work of Mercy Ministries. They were going to lead the work of mercy ministries. They were going to organize it better. But the mercy ministries has been happening all the way through, through who? Through the common members, the men, the women who are out there being involved. And so the leadership does not displace our work. It's supposed to organize and help it. Verse two goes on to say, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, that is not meant to demean the work of Mercy Ministries. Instead, what it was designed to do is to help people to realize uh, these apostles need to be freed up to do what they were most gifted to do. It's a specialization, a division of labor. And I think uh, more and more that we're going to have to have more of that specialization and division of labor as this church uh, grows over time as well. The other thing to notice from that phrase is that it implies that the apostles were heading up these mercy ministries at this point, obviously not doing a very adequate job of it. That's why they needed to make some changes. But to me, this means several things. First of all, it means that there is no task that is beneath the dignity of a pastor. If the apostles could wait on tables, every one of us should be willing to wait on tables as well. Uh, I've willingly engaged in every ministry of the church down through the years, including setting up chairs, you know, at 7.30 in the morning, uh, being a a plumber, a carpenter, a secretary. And all of that is biblical when it is a needed thing to happen. Uh, And I've been, you know, quite pleased to, to do that. In fact, I would say that a potential elder or a potential pastor is not ready to be a pastor if doing menial tasks is beneath his dignity, right? Uh, That's the attitude that I have seen amongst many pastors, that uh, that's way beneath them. If you take a look at verse 4, you will see a phrase there. It says, ministry of the word. This is what he was going to be specializing in. Well, the word ministry there is diakonia. It's service. It's the word we get deacon from. Uh, It's the same word that's used in verse 2, to serve serve tables same word you cannot get away from servanthood and so what these apostles have demonstrated they were ready to be specialized in the ministry of the word in the service of the word because they had already showed servant hearts in every area of ministry uh, within the church and so the first thing i want you to notice there is no task that is beneath the dignity of a pastor cleaning toilets anything did jesus not clean his disciples feet he did but let's balance that with the other side. The second thing implied from verse 2 is that there does come a time when pastors, associate pastors, and elders need to become more specialized. Now, that doesn't mean they're still not going to pitch in here and there, you know, on various things that come up. But it does mean that specialization is biblical, and at a certain phase in a church's life, it is almost inevitable. Now he didn't say here it's not possible. He said it is not Desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables He's saying there's a better way for the church to efficiently function Third thing that we notice is that prayer and the preaching of the word takes precedence over mercy ministries And I think we need to keep that in mind because there has been an overreaction Frequently the church responds to problems by overreacting to the other side And what's happened in some churches is they've seen in the past that the church has neglected very critical mercy ministries And so now they've gone to the other side and they say, this is the top ministry. And I'm here to say, it's not. Uh, The Word of God is the primary uh, ministry. He says it is not desirable that we should uh, leave the Word of God and serve tables. There's a priority of the Word. Now next week, we're going to be seeing the fact that mercy ministries and the role of deacons is incredibly important it may not be neglected and that's why even though they had no deacons here the apostles had to engage in mercy ministries they had to oversee it as poorly as it was happening because they were just stretched beyond their limits it still has to happen we may not leave the ministry of mercy ministries either so we're not saying because one is a priority that you can ditch the other both need to happen in fact we're going to be seeing next week mercy ministries is so important that god gives the same, almost the same qualifications for that office as he does for the office of elder. Why? You know, if all it is, is, uh, you know, managing the properties, then, uh, (laughs) you know, you don't need to have those qualifications, but you see mercy ministries in God's sight. And the, uh, the work of deacons is so important that he says it is a spiritual office. He says that they have to be spirit filled. We're going to be looking next week at what exactly that means and why in the world he would have that qualification. So even though there's a priority issue there, we should not think that waiting on tables is not a spiritual work. Uh, All of those are needed. Now, let me just quickly summarize what we've covered today. First, we've seen that it's possible for us to go so fast that we fail to analyze and can easily miss important details. And so over the next five, six years, have mercy on the elders, you know, if they overlook Uh, Issues that uh, are important to to them busyness is going to make us from time to time Overlook things just as the Apostles overlooked something that was major. It was a major thing that they just were oblivious to I wasn't deliberate. They simply were not aware that certain widows were being neglected secondly Don't think this is the balance of that point Don't think that the busyness of the elders means you can ignore the problems, okay? The citizens of the kingdom (laughs) Are important as well. You've got a role to play because just as that jet uh, was shot down from going too fast, the whole church can get shot down. You've got a vested interest in making sure that it is not shot down. And so there's an the importance of evaluating. Now, our elders wisely are seeking to evaluate the ministries of the church, but if we miss something, bring it to our attention. Now, we may have blind spots that uh, we're just not seeing. Thirdly, seek holiness. Racial prejudice may not be the besetting sin that afflicts you, but whatever sins that we the Lord brings to our attention, immediately deal with it. Seek holiness. Fourth, when sin is hurting others in the church, it can't be ignored. It needs to be confronted. But don't confront it the way that the Hellenists did by murmuring, complaining, gossiping. Uh, Stirring up dissension it never wins a brother does not produce the righteousness of God It only divides and gives Satan an opportunity to just totally tear the church apart fifth Don't be a perfectionistic church Um, Even if even the church of the first 50 years under the leadership of the Apostles had problems with the people and had problems with the leaders Well, you can expect that every church in modern days is going to, at some point, have problems in leaders and problems in the church as well. So, my point is, don't be longing for a first century church, okay? Uh, The church is supposed to always be advancing from age to age according to Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, I encourage you to read that. That's such an encouraging passage because it says there's coming a day when the church is going to be growing into a mature man and is not going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So don't be looking back to the... You can look back to the first century church to learn, but don't look back to envy. Um, Sixth, just as this reminds us once again that we must have an every-member-is-a-minister attitude, let's commit ourselves to mutual ministry uh, within the church. Every one of you is called to be a part of the solution when we're going too fast. Seventh, There are two responses to sin that are allowed. One is to let our love ignore, to cover over the sin. Be praying for them, obviously, but not deal with every sin. Man, it would be so discouraging if God said, okay, Phil, here's the uh, 10,566 sins that you've got and I want you to get over it this week. It's like, ah, you know, you just faint because you just, it seems hopeless. God takes us through a little bit at a time and we need to be patient with each other as well so that's the first option the second option is to confront it especially when it is hurtful to them and to each other and an eighth rebuke gossip have nothing to do with it now on occasion you know i have found myself engaging in this word gong gonguzmas, you know this complaining uh over the last 20 years and let me tell you it does not produce the righteousness of god it doesn't help the situation out at all. All it does is it enables Satan to have an opportunity to get in, make you bitter, make other people bitter, and to divide the church. And so rebuke gossip, have nothing to do with it. Ninth, pray that your elders, who I believe do have servants' hearts, pray that they would over time be freed up to engage in the things that they are especially called to, and especially that we would, they would be freed up by uh, officers being elected, deacons being elected. And uh, by the way, I, I want to thank you for uh, freeing me up to some degree, and hopefully over the next five years being freed up more to, to engage in the preaching and the writing of the Word both inside and outside uh, of the church. But pray that this increased specialization would not keep us out of touch of the people. We'd be right in there. But anyway, that's, uh, that's all I'm going to bring to you today. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your Word and that it does deal with everything that we experience there is nothing new under the sun that uh, when we are tempted uh, it is uh, we are uh, being tempted by things which are common to man and that you are faithful that you provide a way of escape that we may be able to bear it and I pray that uh, increasingly you would give wisdom to the uh uh, officers of this church and uh, guiding the ministries of this church the future that you would give wisdom to the people as they engage in ministries and that both officers and people would have great joy in the lord the empowering of the holy spirit that we would be advancing be a vigorous a vibrant church we recognize father it's not going to be a problem free church uh, but we recognize as well that your grace is sufficient for anything that we may face and thank you for the Uh, the testimonies of your scriptures, of how exactly uh, you have given blueprints for how we can overcome those. To you be all the honor, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.